Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm John Marzalek, a host for the podcast, Queer Voices of the South, a LGBTQ plus studies channel podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking to Derek Mason about his book, Queer Anxieties of Young Adult Literature and Culture, published by the University Press of Mississippi. Young adult literature featuring, featuring LGBTQ plus characters is booming. In the 1980s and 1990s, only a handful of such titles were published every year. Recently, these numbers have soared to over 100 annual releases. Queer characters are also appearing more frequently in film, on television, and in video games. This explosion of queer representation, however, has prompted new forms of long-standing culture anxieties about adolescent sexuality. What makes for a good coming-out story? Will increased queer representation in young people's media teach adolescents the right lessons and help queer teens live happier, better lives? What if these stories harm young people instead of helping them? In Queer Anxieties of Young Adult Literature and Culture, Derek Mason considers these questions through a range of popular media, including an assortment of young adult books, Caper and the Castro, the first ever queer video game, online fan communities, and popular television series Glee and Big Mouth. Mason argues themes that generate the most anxiety about adolescent culture, queer visibility, risk-taking, HIV AIDS, dystopia, and horror. And the promise that it gets better and the threat that it might not challenge us to rethink how we read and engage with young people's media. Instead of imagining queer young adult literature as a subgenre defined by its visibly queer characters, Mason proposes that we see queer YA as a body of transmedia, text with blurry boundaries, one that coheres around effect, specifically anxiety instead of content. Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you too. And I wondered if you could begin by telling us about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am a an assistant professor of English at the University of Calgary in Canada, and my teaching and research take place at the intersections of children's and young adult literature, gender and sexuality studies, and popular culture. So I have a pretty interdisciplinary background, and I think that's reflected in, in what I teach and research. I, I actually have an undergraduate mm-hmm. degree in media studies, English and French. Um, ah. I have a, yeah. I have a master's in cultural studies, and prior to starting my PhD, I spent a few years working at the National Film Board of Canada, which is a government-owned uh, film production agency up here. And oh, so, fascinating. Yeah, and my new my new work is actually um, my work in the book on Caper and the Castro led me down a video game rabbit hole, and I'm now getting into <laughs> queer game studies and coming of age themes in video games. So that's what that's what I'm currently working on. Oh, fascinating. So we may have you on the show again in a future with a future I, project, it sounds anytime, like. Anytime. Anytime, John. Yeah, I'd love to come yeah. back. <laughs> well, you're certainly well-rounded. And um, I wanted to just mention to listeners you know, um, of our podcast, Queer Voices of the South, you may be wondering, we have a, what are we doing having a Canadian author on our show? And we, we have Derek here for several reasons, besides the fact that his book is so wonderful. Um, the first being that Derrida and I are both authors with University Press of Mississippi, which is obviously a Southern press. And then, Derrida, I realized that Calgary is on the southern border of Canada. So I think you qualify as a queer voice of the South in at least two ways that I can think of. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And I mean, Calgary is technically referred to as being in southern Alberta. Uh, oh, so, okay. I mean, yeah. I guess it's kind of south. But I mean, yeah, it's still a substantial drive down to um uh, you know, the U.S. from here. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to, to belong to this club in any capacity. <laughs> well, yeah. And the, the nice thing about um, doing this project with my co-hosts is we get to decide what a queer voice of the South constitutes. So we're happy to have you join us. Uh, Thanks so, so much. Um, yeah. So tell us, tell us how you came about to write this book. 
Definitely. I, I, I've, I've always had a research interest in queer youth media. Uh, by that, I mean media for queer youth and also media created by queer youth. I, I wrote a master's project on a queer youth digital filmmaking project that's part of Toronto's Inside Out Queer Film Festival. Mm. And that was where I saw my research taking me as I started my PhD. Um, it, it was really going to be an extension of my master's research. So I was interested in queer youth media, broadly speaking. I started my PhD in uh, in 2009. This, you know, this book mm. yeah, began as my dissertation. And then in, in fall 2010, as I was you know, finishing my coursework, starting work on my exams, really starting to imagine what my dissertation was going to look like, I found that the entire landscape of queer youth representation changed quite suddenly. Uh, and this began with a really tragic series of gay teen suicides in the fall of 2010 that were widely publicized in the media. I mean, queer teens have been sub subjected to bullying and all kinds of violence for years now. But mm -hmm. in the span of three weeks that fall, five American teens took their own lives. Uh, Billy Lucas, Asher Brown, Seth Walsh, Raymond Chase, and Tyler Clementi, mm -hmm. which was a very publicized case of a, uh, he was a Rutgers student. And then all of a sudden, queer youth bullying, violent suicide seemed to just explode in the media like it never had before. And then as a result of that, we had the emergence of the um, It Gets Better anti-bullying YouTube project that was started by yeah. Dan Savage and his partner, Terry Miller. And this made you know huge headlines. Barack Obama, Ellen DeGeneres, other celebrities were contributing videos to this project that was accumulating hundreds of thousands of views in a very, very short period of time, all drawing attention to the status of queer youth. And then around the same time, there was this explosion of queer young adult literature, queer representation in young adult mm -hmm. literature, criticism about queer young adult literature, and this really interesting shift in how people I found were talking about queer representation in texts for young people. And so this, yeah, this sudden explosion of attention that queer youth were getting in the media really made me want to write about it and think you know what, yeah. what was happening and so that's really how this this project began and i mean this is now over a decade ago so it's changed quite substantially since it was my dissertation and then eventually was revised into the book but that's ultimately really what inspired it and to a certain degree now the book is almost a historical study uh you know that stretches back you know only a decade but that looks at the period around 2010, 2010 through 2012 mm -hmm. as this really significant part of the history of queer young adult literature and what queer representation, um, queer youth representation in popular media looks like today. It's really fascinating. Um, you know, as I was reading your book, I was learning about um, queer young adult literature that I'd never even known about and that I had, you know, didn't, had never thought about, and it's just, it's so fascinating. So it's going to be fun talking about this today. Oh, looking forward to it. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to, before we get into the book itself, I wanted to see if you'd comment on the cover because it is so colorful and the, the almost cartoonish like figures in the front made me want to just look inside. You know, I, I did of course, cause I read it, but it's just wondered if you could tell us about the art around that cover. I'd love to. Yeah, I also I I am just completely obsessed with this cover. I'm really happy with it. I, I I'm just so delighted with how it it turned out. And I mean, I don't know that there's really an interesting story about it. I was exploring yeah. um, Shutterstock just to find uh, you know inspiration for what I might want the cover to look like to send to the press. And I was looking at vector style art, so and also a lot of neon stuff. And I stumbled upon this artist Dan Jazia who mm. is who produced the the artwork that ultimately landed on the cover and i just I, I loved his stuff because it was colorful it was dynamic and what was really important to me was that i wanted it to signify childhood and adolescence without being too childish and i also wanted yeah. it to signify queerness without being like pink and rainbows and all of these kind of other cliches and to me this just kind of does all of these things i think it's playful and colorful and dynamic in a way that is youthful without being childish and also queer i mean you have these different um uh, hopefully the listeners will be able to see it online but you have these different kind I of will. representations of people that aren't fully human but you know are still really colorful and engaging and interesting to look at uh, and not necessarily normative in their appearance, right? And so to me, it, it signifies playfulness and um, 
childhood and adolescence and and queerness without being too on the nose, I guess. Yeah. And our listeners will be able to see it. And with the description of this podcast, there'll be a picture of the cover. So I'm glad they'll be able to relate to that. Oh, great. And it was fascinating what you were saying, because I remember reading in your book, um, I think it may have been the introduction, about talking about boundaries, I think that's the term you used, between adulthood and you know childhood and adolescence and how queer YA for young adult um, plays into that. Yeah, I, I think a big part of what I'm trying to do in the book and also what a lot of scholars have been doing in the fields of queer studies, generally speaking, queer childhood studies, queer children's literature studies, is push at these boundaries between child and adult in, in mm-hmm. different ways, right? In the way that, that queer studies pushes at the boundaries between, you know, what we consider to be quote unquote normal and why, um, undoing these binary categories. And yeah, I, I think that a, a big part of the book is trying to ask, you know, who consumes what kind of media and why? Why do we assume that certain kinds of media are designated for children? What is our investment in these categories that we've created? Um, and and what kind of work do they do they do for us? Um, yeah, and, and and trying to think about you know how we imagine the constitution of children's literature and young adult literature and literature for adults and and why. And mm-hmm. how can we see the boundaries between these genres as being perhaps a little bit more blurry than we typically do? Right, right. That, that was that was so interesting. At one one point in this discussion, you talk about a novel being for ch- uh, adolescents or a novel um, about adolescents, and it, it it makes sense when you think about it. But I'd never thought about that before. Yeah, this is a distinction that a couple of children's literature scholars have pointed out. I think the person I cite is Kenneth Kidd, who's a really fantastic uh, scholar mm. who has always been at the forefront of queer children's literature studies. And in his book, Freud and Oz, he talks about the distinction between the the adolescent novel and the novel of adolescence, where mm-hmm. the novel of adolescence, stories about coming of age, have existed actually for a long time, whereas the adolescent novel, which we have kind of come to know as the young adult novel, is relatively speaking a very recent phenomenon that only emerged at the, the turn of the 20th century, or sorry, the middle of the 20th century when the category young adult was created by the American Library Association. And so, ah. again, yeah, we tend to, we, we have these fairly rigid categories of genre, I think, you know, children, this is a children's book, this is a young adult book, and we take them for granted when in fact, just like the categories of childhood and adolescence themselves, they are in fact social and cultural uh, creations. Hmm. That's, that's fascinating. That's just, just like the, just like the whole concept of queer, you know, a social construction. That's, that's very, it's very interesting. Definitely. Um, yeah. Before we really jump into the really the meat of the book and the, the, the different concepts. I wondered if you could, you know, tell us how the book is organized for someone who hasn't read it yet and how you decided what to include in the book. Yeah, it's a fantastic question. Uh, so I, I organized the book around different, what I call sites of anxiety. So different themes or different spaces in the literary and cultural landscape that I see as particularly pivotal spaces where critics um, of children's and young adult literature get quite anxious about something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I found that these were these were interesting places to explore because of the anxiety, but also because I thought that these themes generated really interesting models for not only thinking about texts that deal with these themes, but thinking about how we relate to one another in the world or what I call models of relationality. And so, yeah, every chapter is a different site of anxiety. So we have visibility, uh, risk, HIV, AIDS, dystopia, horror, getting better, not getting better. And then my conclusion is immaturity. And so really, I just came to organize them around both individual texts that I thought were really interesting that I wanted to say more about, but also, again, themes that kept arising and emerging in different um, cultural pieces of cultural commentary or criticism that I would read about young adult literature or media for young people. And it sounds like that's one of the ways that that you're the way you're looking at this is different from other authors or critics is that you're including you're including more than only books and novels into what you in, what you consider to be um, young adult literature. 
Yeah, a big thing that I wanted to do with this book is, again, push at the boundaries of how we tend to imagine queer young adult literature. So I still, obviously, young adult literature is still a huge part of the book. But what I'm trying to do is look at how, um, you know, how do we typically imagine genre, right? We imagine mm-hmm. genre as a kind, as a, as a set of a way of categorizing a set of cultural texts that all do something similar, right? Typically, we imagine genre in terms of narrative convention. Uh, so, you know, the romantic comedy, there's going to be a meet cute, you know, in, in the, the classic heterosexual romantic comedy, you have a meet cute, you have boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back, right? Those are the, the basic <laughs> right, conventions yeah. that define the romantic comedy. And for young adult literature, you have a similar way of imagining conventions, uh, coming of age conventions. Um, a, a big, for example, narrative convention of both children's and young adult literature is a home away home story. So the protagonist yeah. begins at home with a type of family that you know might look a certain way. They go away on a certain kind of adventure where they'll have experiences that will allow them to grow into adulthood. And then they either return to their original home or they form a new home. And again, in the most mm-hmm. conventional hetero stories, you have the young narrator growing into uh, heterosexual marriage, right? And beginning to create a family of their own. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of move away from not only imagining young adult literature as a genre defined by certain conventions, but also young adult literature as pr- a print-based genre, right? When you say young adult mm-hmm. literature, young adult text, you, you tend to think of books. And I was like, okay, well, what if we open this up a little bit and think about how young adult themes, young adult conventions um, are not only present in other texts, but also how this central affect, the central feeling of anxiety that I describe in the book is also somehow relevant to a particular set of cultural texts. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I land on uh, queer YA, which is queer young adult literature, um, but also I'm trying to use it to stand in for a broader array of cultural texts that aren't only limited to print literature that is marketed towards young adults yeah and we'll, we'll get into this but you you know you have a website a project you have a cartoon um and of course a video game so it was just it's fascinating to to know about that yeah and uh, something else that i'm trying to do as well i think is demonstrate how children's literature theory which is such a rich uh body of of variety of different works and, and theories is is useful for not only reading print literature but can also help us read a, a greater breadth of cultural text and so that's what I do on my chapter in the it gets better project which is a web-based YouTube project it's not something that we would consider to be necessarily children's mm-hmm. literature and I asked the question well what would it mean to put children's literature theory into conversation with it gets better what can these two things maybe teach us about each other even if they aren't necessarily things that we would typically associate with each other right off the bat. Mm-hmm. You did it very well. Oh, I yeah. appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, going back to anxiety, because that's that you've mentioned that already, and it's a theme that runs through your book, as you've said. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about how, how anxiety is related to queer YA, including how it's related, how you talked about it being related to both adults and adolescents. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, anxiety right now is an all too real part of, <laughs> I think, so oh, many yeah. of our lives in this pandemic yeah. situation. Right. Uh, so maybe the book was a bit too on the nose for uh, to be published in 2021. But um, I, I use anxiety in the book in a, in a couple of different ways. So the first is I consider the links between the history of adolescence and anxiety. So I actually consider the history of adolescence to be something of a history of anxiety because Adolescence as a category, as a social and cultural category, was really invented at the turn of the 20th century. So again, it's a relatively recent phenomenon out of a kind of anxiety that was emerging as um, young people were having more. So, you know, child labor laws had been changing for a while now. Young people were having more and more uh, leisure time. And mm-hmm. they were going to school more often, right? They weren't immediately going into the workplace. And so there was this sense that um, something had to be done about this, what was perceived to be emerging age category. People who were not necessarily children, not necessarily adults, you know, what could we do with them? And the, the um, person I cite in the book, Stanley Hall, who's 
often credited with inventing adolescence, albeit in this tremendously kind of problematic mm. and colonial and racist way, came up with this idea that what, what we had to do with adolescence was, was manage them, right? Was um, uh, corporal punishment was a possibility. You had to have mm. institutions like schooling and YMCA in order to control people between childhood and adulthood and ensure that you were producing basically good citizens. So, uh, at, and at the same time, you had Freud, of course, writing, um, developing theories of childhood sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, you had, you know, Margaret Mead responding to Stanley Hall as well. So there's a lot of people famously writing about adolescence. And uh, as I argue, this, these were all emerging from kind of cultural and social anxieties about what to do with a certain uh demographic, right? So if you can better describe them, you can better control them. And so I, mm. I trace this, this longer history of the very category of adolescence emerging out of these cultural anxieties about what to do with a particular demographic of people. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking as a kind of a funny aside, if you could bring Freud and um, Mead and some of the other people you mentioned to the future and let them see adolescents of today's world on their iPhones. I don't know if they'd know what to do with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure either, but I would watch that reality show because I'm sure that that's what the format it would be in. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. Um, you, I can keep going. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I can keep going on the anxiety piece or we can pivot. It's totally, completely. I think I'm have some other questions that can be related to that. So sure, yeah. Great, maybe, great, great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and th this probably is going to tie into it right here. But um, one of the things I learned as I read your book, since I'm not an expert in um, in YA or even queer YA, is that you have a different view about the value of early queer YA titles. Like one that you, you really cover in um, one of the early chapters is um, John Donovan's I'll Get There, It Better Be Worth the Trip. And, mm -hmm. and you talk about how to a lot of critics that you cite – they don't see a lot of value in this in this novel, but you you see something different. Yeah, so this is in fact how we might characterize the second iteration of anxiety that's appearing in, appearing in the book, and this is the anxiety mm -hmm. of a number of contemporary critics who write about queer young adult literature, but have a very specific idea of what queer young adult literature should look like. And I, I want to mm -hmm. be careful and say that I'm not saying that there is a good kind of queer young adult literature. What I found so interesting was the investment in a certain kind of representation of queer youth in young adult literature. And so I found a number of, of critics were writing about older queer YA texts. So as you mentioned, John Donovan's I'll Get There, It Better Be Worth the Trip, which is widely recognized as the first North American young adult novel to have openly gay themes. Uh, and uh, another example, Isabel Holland's The Man Without a Face from the early 70s. And a lot of these books contain, uh, admittedly, these awful stereotypes. So, so, for example, Davy, the protagonist of Donovan's novel, has a distant father and an alcoholic mother and no friends and is kind of lonely and isolated from everyone. Same thing in The Man Without a Face. You have a kind of lonely... Um, lonely young male protagonist with a troubled relationship to his parents, absent mm. father. And so these, these kind of stereotypes manifest themselves quite often in these old books. And also yeah. there's a tremendous amount of um, homophobic violence. And so what's, what's interesting and also quite sad is that publishers in the early days of queer young adult literature and the early days of queer literature generally, I should say, actually wouldn't allow authors to write books with happy endings and queer characters. Because the argument went, certainly in terms of queer young adult literature, gay young adult literature at the time, is that you actually couldn't live a happy life as an out gay teen. And so it was actually mm -hmm. harmful. It would be harmful to young people to represent happy gay lives in young adult literature because it would delude them into thinking that this was a possibility. And so publishers uh. would often say, no, no, you have to kill one of the characters in a car crash. They can't end up in a relationship. You have to like murder their pet or something like that. There has to be some element of sadness in the book. Uh, and today you have this total pivot where now the arguments being made is that if you don't have happy queer characters, if you aren't offering more positive representations, that is actually, if you're not doing this, this is what will actually harm young queer people. And so I found that pivot to be quite interesting. But I also wanted to ask the question, because so many critics were like, um, you know, contemporary queer young adult literature, where there is a bit more hope, there is a bit more happiness. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of 
literature we want to be giving to young people. And again, I don't disagree with this, especially having mm-hmm. spent many years of my life reading really depressing early yeah. queer young adult books. Yeah. It takes a toll on you as a queer person to see just like gay people getting tarred and feathered, dying in car crashes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I found this, this impulse to dismiss or disregard the early texts um, interesting. And so I wanted to take a look at them and be like, okay, sure, they contain these stereotypes. Yes, they're problematic representations, but are there also interesting, potentially very queer things happening in these books? And if so, mm-hmm. what can we say about them? And so that was that's what I'm doing in these early, especially the first two chapters of the book is looking at uh, Donovan and Holland's novels and saying, okay, what's in here that's actually interesting and queer that we shouldn't dismiss simply because the book might contain outmoded stereotypes? Is that what you mean when you say um, the importance of being able to read queerly? That's that's exactly it, because there's this distinction between... So, so I say that Donovan's book is recognized as the first young adult book with visible, visible gay content, and I think mm-hmm. it's important to distinguish that and not dismiss the fact that queer people have been reading, making queerness out of the things that they read for a long, long time prior to, you know, the 60s. Uh, There's a fantastic Uh. scholar named Alexander Doty, who's done a tremendous amount of writing, really, really good writing on queer reading practices. And he argues that essentially, you know, queer people can locate themselves in texts that don't contain visible representations of queerness. In fact, we do this all the time, right? This is how the idea of camp came into being. It was about Uh. locating yourself in a certain kind of sensibility. I mean, the the classic example is The Wizard of Oz, right? The Wizard of Oz doesn't contain, like, the Tin Man never comes out as gay. And yet The Wizard of Oz has become this canonical queer text because queer people, queer readers have made it into that by identifying with certain characters in different ways. Um, Alexander Doty, who I just mentioned, has a great article on The Wizard of Oz as a lesbian fantasy where Dorothy has to choose between Butch and femme identities represented <laughs> by the good witch and the wicked witch. Uh, and it's just this very playful, uh, fantastic article. So yeah, I mean, that that's that's the distinction I'm trying to make is that we shouldn't necessarily, or, or rather there's, there's a lot to be gained by reading these early queer YA texts queerly, that is seeing what's in the margins, seeing what gets overlooked, uh, seeing what kind of relationships are represented that aren't necessarily limited to a character being like, I'm out and proud, I am gay, right? Which is the thing right, that right. a lot of critics want. And again, rightfully so, like that that's really imp- that kind of representation is truly important. But my argument is we shouldn't disregard the other kinds of queerness in these books. It reminds me of the um the film documentary that came out I don't know how many years ago now, Celluloid Closet. Did you ever see that? I, I definitely did. I, I remember seeing yeah. that movie as an undergraduate in one of my classes and just having my mind blown by it. Me too, exactly. Yeah, I, I just, it stu- stuck with me all these years. There's a scene in there where one of the women who's talking about, you know, the the way movies portrayed LGBTQ people back in those days said, you know, that something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing, as queer people, we look for we look for representation in any way we can. You know, and she said something like, if there's a, if there's a lesbian vampire, I'm like, yeah, I'm on it. I'm going to watch that movie. And it, it makes me think of what you're saying that we're, you know, we're people that have been othered by society. And so when we see these themes of somebody else being othered, we want to we want to relate to it and jump on it. Absolutely. And I, I mean, the other classic example is Disney villains, right? Oh, Disney villains yeah. that are all infused with this queer camp sensibility. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's known now that Ursula the Sea Witch was modeled after Divine, the famous drag queen. Uh, and so that's another oh, wow. place where young people who encounter, obviously, a lot of Disney texts self-fashion their relationship to queerness through Disney villains. Uh, Bugs Bunny with things like that. That's in, that's very interesting, huh? Um, well, I'm learning something, and I, our listeners are too, just by talking to you. So this is <laughs> this is great. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thank um, you. Yeah, yeah. Another term I wondered about um, that that um, I'm guessing our listeners haven't heard before is you you introduce a concept called queer double take in the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could tell us about that. Yeah, and this also gets at probably the third kind of, the, the final uh, and third type of anxiety that I'm exploring in the book. So we have the history of adolescence as a history of anxiety, the mm-hmm. anxiety of critics who write about queer young adult literature. And then the third kind of anxiety that I'm looking at is based on 
anxiety not only as a feeling, but also an experience of time. And so this formulation of anxiety is inspired, I'd say, by by two theorists who have produced wonderful, wonderful work. Uh, One is Adam Phillips, who's a psychoanalytical thinker, and the other is Catherine Bond Stockton, who has a book called The Queer Child, which came out in 2009. I can't believe it. It still feels like a brand new book uh, (laughs) that is all about how as a child, as children, queer people experience time, which is not according to the linear model of growing up that we tend to have, right? So we imagine growing up as this linear experience of time where you're a child, you grow up through adolescence, and eventually you reach adulthood. Everything is straightforward. The metaphor is literally growing up. Stockton argues that there is an experience of time that she describes as growing sideways, where as a child, if you feel queer, if you feel like you don't fit into the models that we have for growing up, what queer children might do is try to delay or stop time or resist growing up and rather linger in the queer space of childhood uh, as an act of sometimes conscious defiance or sometimes unconscious resistance to yeah, this idea that we all have to grow up, right? Because as, as a queer kid, if you see the only model that you have for yourself is heterosexual adulthood, and you look at it and you're like, oh my gosh, that's that's not me. I can't grow up into this. Stockton argues that you actually form alternate queer relationships. You try to delay time uh, mm. instead of seeing this queer question mark uh, at the end of, at the kind of end of the road. And so this really informs, so th- what I argue is that, um, this this metaphor of growing sideways instead of growing up, the primary affect or emotion that we might attach to it is anxiety. And this is where my psychoanalytic theories come into it. So uh, Adam Phillips describes the temporality of worrying as an attempt to arrest the passage of time. So when we worry or when we experience anxiety, there's something that's different that's happening with uh, the way that we're experiencing time, right? We um, are both looking forward because the thing that we're worried about or anxious about is probably in the future. Um, but mm-hmm. at the same time, we don't want to experience it. So we're trying to halt or stop time from huh. from passing. And I mean, I just thought this was a really compelling resonance between these two thinkers who aren't in their own works in direct conversation with one another, right? What the, the, yeah. the type of temporality Phillips is describing was just very resonant with what Stockton was describing as growing sideways. And so what I look at is how many characters in young adult literature actually embody this kind of experience of time, uh, this anxious experience of time that both Phillips and Stockton are describing. And, and whereas so many critics of queer young adult literature, again, um, especially in the early days of queer YA, were pushing for queer young characters to come out, right? The coming out narrative is also a linear one. It's like you grow up, you are mm-hmm. trying to figure yourself out, you hit adolescence or maybe your 20s, and then you come out and you found yourself and it's like game over. And then you grow up into whatever type of LGBTQ adulthood you've you've chosen for yourself or, or feel the best represents you. Um, but what was so interesting to me is that so many queer young adult literature characters in queer young adult literature embody this more anxious experience of time where they're both um, looking, they're frozen. So they're, they're trying to delay the passage of time, but also looking forward to what Stockton calls the queer question mark of their future. And so this is where I Mm -hmm. kind of, um, this is also inspired by an illustration that appears by uh, Amy DeGenero that appears in uh, an excellent issue on queer childhood of the journal English Studies in Canada that was edited by Nat Hurley, uh, where you have this kind of two-faced character who's looking back and looking forward, but being sucked uh, into the future with this kind of momentum. And so uh. that's, the, that's the, the kind of rhythm I see these young characters as embodying, this, this queer double take, the sense of being frozen, of trying to delay time, while also moving forward into their into their queer future. Sorry, I realized that was a very long-winded No, it's, uh, it's, no, it's very interesting. <laughs> well, no, and I was sitting there thinking about how you also talk about, I think, in your book, about how writers of YA and adult readers are also, I guess, going back in time and, and thinking about their own experiences and maybe in a way, in a way finding therapeutic value in that. 
Yeah, and I look at that uh, quite a bit in the chapter that's on the It Gets Better project, which is itself a, an anti-bullying project that's done really, really fantastic things for young queer people. And it is based primarily, it, the contributors are all adults, right? They're adults mm-hmm. who are trying to send the message to young queer people that it gets better, right? If you if you can just endure yeah. adolescence, um, things will get better. It's worth it. Um, we want you around. Please don't take your own lives. Uh, it's a really important and powerful message. And what I find so interesting about the project is that it is premised on this nostalgic or maybe not nostalgic, but retrospective look back at their own queer childhood, right? So in order to narrate these videos, the contributors have to think back to their own queer adolescence and describe to a certain degree the the story or the message that they would have liked to have hear, heard as, as queer teens. Mm-hmm. And so there we also have this, this, this look back, this looking back gesture in order to articulate the current situation facing queer young people. Hmm. That, that, that is, that's so interesting. And that really tied into what you said several places in your book that, that the YA, queer YA isn't only read by young adults, but it's read by adults too. And or in fact, viewed for the other media, yeah. Yeah, there, there are some really interesting studies that have been released in the last decade as young adult literature has really exploded. Um, if, if any of your uh, listeners want to Google them, they're pretty easy to find. One was done by Publishers mm-hmm. Weekly a couple years ago, and I'm not going to remember the specific numbers off the top of my head. But basically, this study revealed that most people who read young adult literature are not, in fact, young adults. Most of them are over 18. In fact, most of the readers of young adult literature are in their 20s and 30s. And when they're purchasing young adult literature, most of the time they're buying it for themselves. So it raises the question of, you know, there's this genre that we call young adult literature that imagines for itself a young adult audience. But most of the readers of young adult books are, in fact, adults. And so this also raises an interesting series of questions about, you know, why are adults so invested in reading young adult literature? What is pleasurable about turning back to adolescence as a kind of... um, yeah, site for for pleasure and enjoyment in in what they're reading. Yeah, and I, you know, I was thinking as you were saying that there are so many, of course, during the pandemic, so so many of us have, have been watching Netflix and all these different you know movie channels, and there are so many TV shows, um, series, and movies about people's experiences in high school. Yes, and I'm guessing that a lot of adults are watching those too, just like you're saying. Definitely. And the one that I write about in my book is I I have a whole chapter dedicated to Big Mouth, which Mm -hmm. is the animated Netflix series uh, that kind of presents itself in a a childlike way, but is very much for at least like has what we would consider to be adult content. Um, It's very explicit. And the show is all about puberty and the horrors of going through puberty. Uh, But it does so it, it explores this topic in a really funny campy, uh, pleasurable, playful way. Uh, And I I find the show so interesting because on on the one hand, I think that it does have a lot of young viewers who are going through puberty and having a number of the kinds of experiences that are represented on the show. But a question that I raise also is why, why, would you even imagine an adult audience for this show? Like what is, what is pleasurable about revisiting the horrors of puberty? Some people might argue nothing (laughs) at all. Right. But obviously there is something, something enjoyable about that or, or the show wouldn't exist and and be so successful. Well, the picture of the hormone monster that you have in your book has really made me laugh as I was reading about that in, in the show. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, I think it's such a. I, I I knew that as soon as I watched the the first season, I was like, I have to write something about this. And I was still working on the book at the time, and I was like, you know what, this is actually a perfect fit for the book because it's all about use playing with the horror genre to tell a story about about puberty, about the horrors and anxieties of uh, going through puberty and the various kinds of bodily traumas and horrors that we all experience, right? Uh, and so, yeah, it ended up being a great fit for the book. Yeah, I'm going to recommend that that show to my um, to my brothers who have um, YA children. So I think that they'll they'll find it interesting. I'm sure. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, another anxiety you talk about is related to the game, the video game Caper in the Castro, and anxiety around HIV/AIDS. And I wondered if you could talk about that. 
definitely. That was one of the chapters I think was the most, I, I, I just had a lot of fun writing that chapter. I, I think that I, I'd never written in a scholarly way about a video game before. Uh, and I just, I, it was just such a blast to, to write. Um, but that's besides the point. So I, I remember <laughs> seeing this uh, news article that I cite at the beginning of the chapter in 2017, I believe it was, it was a vice article mm-hmm. that announced that the first ever queer video game had recently been rediscovered or rather it had re- it had been, um, yeah, recovered by its creator and made available online for everyone to play. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is this is so cool. I mean, I hadn't I, I played a ton of video games growing up, but hadn't haven't really kept it up in adulthood until recently when I've made it part of my research. And so <laughs> I played it and just had such an interesting experience with it uh, that again, I, I decided I need to find a way to write about this because I find it so compelling. And what yeah. I thought was so interesting about it is that it was created by CM Ralph uh, during the height of the HIV AIDS crisis. And it was she, uh, Ralph created it as a way of, um, she called it charity wear. So it was a way of raising funds for her friends, members of, of her community who had been affected by HIV AIDS. And so the game was really released in... Um, yeah, during during the height of a this this very very serious crisis that was being ignored by by governments all around the world, and yet the game it it simultaneously has doesn't mention HIV AIDS, but is all about HIV AIDS. Like the the premise of this game, it's very very funny, very tongue in cheek, is that you're a, a lesbian detective named Tracker McDyke, and <laughs> uh, this this well known drag queen from the Castro neighborhood, Tessie Lafemme, goes missing and you were tasked with finding out, finding out where she went. And it turns out, uh, and I, I don't want to give too much away. Uh, I don't want to spoil it for people who might want to play it. You can play it for free online. If you Google it, Caper in the Castro. Um, oh, but fun. essentially your role as, as tracker McDyke is that you slowly uncover this conspiracy by this uh, man named Dulligan straight man. <laughs> and it's a it's a conspiracy to murder all of the queer people in the Castro by poisoning gay bar drinks with a lethal bacteria. Uh, um, and the way that the game unfolds, again, I don't want to give too much away, is that sometimes the, the bacteria is described as a bacteria. Sometimes it's described as a virus. Um, if you, as the protagonist, go into a bar and like just drink out of one of the random bottles, you get this death message that says that you know you're you've you've been poisoned by a lethal virus and there is no cure. You're about to die, and there mm. you can't kind of um, ignore the the resonances of this these themes with the fact that this game was created in uh, HIV during the height of the HIV AIDS crisis, right? Um, and this yeah. to me reminded me of so many of the critiques of young adult novels that represent HIV AIDS is that a lot of literature for young people and children about HIV AIDS does its best to keep HIV AIDS away from young protagonists. So often mm-hmm. young adult novels, it's not young protagonists who are HIV positive, rather it's the it's their uncle or it's their teacher. That's when true. young adult protagonists are HIV positive, it's often as the result of a um, very statistically unlikely cause like a blood transfusion or something like that. Mm. And so there's this, again, tremendous anxiety that surrounds how we talk about and represent young people and their relationship to HIV AIDS. And so at once HIV AIDS is in a lot of young adult literature, but at the same time, it it's pushed to the margins in, in this, you know, really kind of interesting, but also I would argue dangerous way. And I thought that it would, you know, as a thought experiment, I was like, what if I put Caper into Castro into conversation with Mm. um, a really interesting contemporary novel, young adult novel, Two Boys Kissing by David Levithan, that kind of also does this, this interesting temporal thing with the representation of HIV AIDS. So the novel is narrated by a chorus of ghosts of gay men who died uh, during the height of the HIV AIDS crisis, but it's set in the in a mm. contemporary time where HIV AIDS kind of doesn't really exist. Um, and so I thought both of these texts are telling really interesting stories about, um, about HIV AIDS 
in ways that spoke to each other in, yeah, in, in just really compelling ways. And so that chapter is, is really a dialogue between Caper and the Castro and how playing it um, creates a kind of affect that, that also gestures to how HIV AIDS is often sidelined or marginalized in, in young adult literature. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a mental health counselor and I teach counseling students, and it sounds like a game like that would have helped people develop some empathy for what somebody was going through. Yeah, and, and the, the, the argument that I kind of make in the chapter is that there, in addition to anxiety, failure is a big part of the way that we feel when we play yeah. Caper in the Castro on a couple of levels. One, because it's so easy to, to die in these multiple ways, but also because the game itself is very glitchy. Uh, uh -huh. and so, and failure is, has recently emerged as a very important concept in both queer theory and video game studies. Um, Jack Halberstam has a book called the queer art of failure and a video hmm. game scholar, Jesper Jewell has a book called the art of failure. Again, really interesting. And it's only recently that, that these two texts have put into been put into conversation with one another. So in this chapter, I'm looking at, uh, affect, uh, that, that emerges from the experience of failure while playing Caper in the Castro and how we might use that to think about the representation of HIV AIDS in, in young adult literature. Yeah. And does it also get into a lack of control around failure? Yeah, definitely. So when, when I talk about the game or rather when Jewel writes about what people experience, how people experience failure when playing games, um, he argues that we actually like video games because they allow us to safely experiment with and experience failure because failure is often built into game mechanics, right? Like you yeah, fail and yeah. lose over and over again, you die in a game. And as you do so, you're as a player, you're expecting to get better at it as you continue to play. Um, but then huh. there's another kind of failure, which is when the game is glitchy or the game continues to insist that you fail or makes you fail despite your best efforts. And that creates a totally different kind of experience. Um, and that's the one that I'm, I'm most interested in when it comes to Caper and the Castro. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, this is an aside, but where was this game played back in those days? It, was it something that somebody would buy in a video store, or you know, where would people find this back no, in those days? Yeah, it's a great question. I, it was it was an indie game, and it was distributed as many games were at that time. I mean, there was no no kind of internet by contemporary standards through which to distribute it. So it was distributed like a lot of shareware was, which was just like informally on discs, right? Passed and copied oh, yeah. from person to person. Or I think that, you know, you could um, write CM Ralph, uh, request a copy of the game and it could get sent to you. But yeah, through almost like zines, right? Like these informal networks of distribution. Oh, um, because so I, interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's funny too, um, because eventually the game got enough traction that there was interest in creating a version of it for widespread distribution. So Ralph actually oh. straightened up the game and called it Murder on Main Street. And that got oh. slightly more, I don't. I still don't think it was like completely commercial, but it got more commercial distribution in this kind of straightened up version. The exact same <laughs> game, just with all of the kind of Castro queer references uh, taken out of it so that you know it would be palatable for mainstream audiences. Huh, that's so interesting. Wow. Yeah, it's a fast, fascinating, fascinating history. Yeah, yeah. Another question I had that this goes to a different area of the book is uh, when you talk about this concept of queer sex and negative space in YA, and if you could tell us about that. Absolutely. So that is the chapter on dystopia, where I look specifically yeah. at Andrew Smith's book, Grasshopper Jungle, which I find to be a really interesting case study in um, negative space because the novel itself is so explicit. It um, the, the protagonist whose name is so, so basically the premise of the book is that there is this mutant um, mantis plague that is unleashed that transforms people into flesh-eating mantises and all these mantises want to do um, is eat other people and and have sex basically and so it's this <laughs> it's this playful i argue that it's this playful satire of unstoppable rampant adolescent sexuality 
and like the uh, hormone monster, huh? Like exactly. I mean, it's no it's no coincidence that the grasshopper jungle and big mouth chapters are side by side in the book because oh, they okay. speak a yeah. lot to one another. Yeah. This this idea of adolescent sexuality as a kind of monster um, is something <laughs> that appears in both of these texts, and other people have written about. Um, for example, uh, Lydia Coccola in in her book on adolescent sexuality. Um, but essentially the protagonist Austin is obsessed with history and he's obsessed in particular with recording every detail of history that, uh, often gets overlooked. So when people use the bathroom, when people masturbate, all of these kind of small, mundane, banal graphic details, he wants to record in this narrative. And so he, he does this and everything gets recorded in ex- often excruciating detail, except <laughs> for the night that he spends with his gay best friend, uh. Robbie, um, and Austin, you know, spends a lot of the novel narrating his own kind of sexual confusion because he has a girlfriend named Shan, uh, who he is in love with, but he's also in love with his male best friend and he kind of doesn't know what to do about it. And all of the sex, the straight sex in the book is described quite graphically, except for his night with Robbie. And I was like, why is it? I mean, uh, I think it, you know, the the easy thing to do would be to accuse the, the publishers of wanting to censor it or... Um, you know, the the author making a kind of homophobic choice by excluding this. But I was like, what's interesting about this moment is that it's because of its absence from the narrative, it is really loud in a kind of way, like it's a striking omission in this otherwise ah. meticulous account. And so I argue that it occupies a kind of negative space in the novel. And here I'm talking about negative space in terms of, you know, from from like a, an art perspective, where it's like mm-hmm. a space that is rendered visible through its um, contrast with other spaces. But also in this chapter, I draw on Lauren Berlant and Lee Edelman's excellent work um, in the book Sex or the Unbearable, where queer negativity involves a kind of, oh, how am I, this is, you know, this is a, a complex theoretical concept oh, yeah. that I'm going to have trouble describing right now, but essentially a, a complete dissolution of how we imagine or characterize relationships, um, mm. where queerness itself comes to occupy a kind of negative space that stands in opposition to um, conventional ways of, of understanding relationality, I guess is probably the best way I can, I can articulate this. And so that's what I argue this, this queer sexual encounter is for Austin is that it, it becomes unbearable and therefore it is, it is unrepresentable. Um, And so it, it, yeah, it occupies the novel's negative space. Sorry, I, I really don't know how coherent that was. <laughs> no, it makes sense. And I, I, I was thinking, and I don't know if this is related at all, but um, I, I wasn't really familiar with the concept of negative space. But as you were describing that with the character in the book, it made me think of, you know, the, the Freudian defense mechanism of, refre- of repression. And I don't know if that's tied into this at all, if there's a commentary. Mm-hmm. I, you, know, you know, the other theorist that people should go to for excellent writing on, um, or the other text, I should say, because it's by Lee Edelman, uh, who co-authored Sex of the Unbearable uh, with Lauren Berlant, uh, but is a book called No Future, Queer Theory or the Death Drive. Of course, the death drive being an important part yeah. of Freud's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, taxonomy of, of terms. And essentially what Edelman argues in No Future is that Queerness is often made to stand for a, a kind of negativity in opposition to what he calls reproductive futurism. So, you know, there's this idea that the, the child represents the future on a, on a symbolic level, right? Uh, and the child is often used to, in political arguments to make a case for X, Y, or Z, right? Like, do it for the children. Think of the children. Um, Mm. You hear all of these homophobic legal arguments being made against, for example, banning trans people from washrooms because they're ostensibly going to harm children, right? Uh, And so queerness comes to occupy this kind of, this negativity. Uh, And Edelman's argument is, Yes, this is this is exactly what queerness should do. Not literally harm children, of course, but rather represent a kind of space that will undo heterosexual, reproductive, futurist ways of being in the world. So if queers are going to be cast as these kind of, you know, monsters who are attacking the heterosexual family unit, then yes, queers should actually do that because the heterosexual family unit sucks and excludes a lot of people, right? 
Um, and huh. so that's another kind of key text in, in, in queer negativity. That's interesting. And this is totally, um, I guess, down a rabbit hole, but it, it reminds me in some ways of the arguments by some queer activists against um, the legalization of gay marriage, you know, believing that we should we shouldn't be joining into this heterosexual institution. Absolutely. It has a I, I think a lot of a lot in common with that. The idea that, you know, by wanting to get married, and again, not knocking queers who want to get married, um, but the institution itself is founded on in, in, in heteropatriarchy and therefore is something that should be dismantled and not something that should be continually reinforced, especially by queer people. Right, right. And I, I should say for the listeners um, that I am I am legally married to a man, so I guess um, I can understand that argument, but I guess I had a different view when it came down to it. I so. think, you know, I think that there's, while we're on the topic, I think there's also something to be said for queering the institution of marriage by participating in ah, it and doing yeah. interesting things from the inside, right? Like, I think that, you know, queers getting married still makes a lot of people quite angry. And I say, then that's good. Let's make people angry by getting married, right? Let's queer the institution of marriage in every way mm. that we can. You know, and, and that kind of brings us full circle, or just to when I look, sit back and think about your book, about how, you know, you describe what critics have said about YA, about needing to have this positive, or queer YA, needing to have this positive spin so that, um, you know, queer youth are, you know, don't, aren't so desolate about the future and so on. But at the same time, you seem to find this middle ground where you try to show that, Yes, that's true, but there's also a, a place where we can we can take we can get value out of these different works, even if there are things that aren't perfect about them. I I thank you for saying that. I think that's a really generous way of um, articulating what I'm trying to do in this book, and I think that's exactly it. the The point of the book is not to dismiss hopeful or happy queer narratives. In fact, that like I, I'm a person who often has conversations with my queer friends about how kind of sick we are of queer tragedy, right? I mean, still yeah. in, in so many queer stories today, it's about shame, it's about suffering, it's about trauma, yeah. and it's like, okay. Always in the band. Of, right? Like, you know, and even, you know, so many recent recent queer films that have, that have come out, Happiest Season is one too, that, you know, it's ostensibly like a lighthearted holiday rom-com, but there's so much like shame and trauma that's in that text that mm -hmm. makes it really hard to watch. Um, and so I think that we need more queer joy. We need queer hope and happiness. And I think that that's so, so important. And the argument that I'm just trying to make is let's not dismiss these, these texts simply because they don't necessarily do that in a way that we, we want them to, right? Something that's so beautiful at the center of John Donovan's I'll Get There, It Better Be Worth the Trip, is this incredibly funny, I think, tongue-in-cheek relationship between a boy and his dog, right? And oh, so right. we yes. put so much value or emphasis on the fact that the character doesn't come out at the end, but it's like he's got this very queer relationship with his dog that's really, you know, I think heartfelt and warm and funny and again playful and i think that we can't we we shouldn't dismiss that right because it's 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 also an important just because it's not like an out gay relationship it's still a a queer relationship on a lot of levels and so it's worth looking at and thinking about yeah you know if we had more time i would ask i would ask you do a follow-up and ask you about the um the different the theme of animals in ya but that'll be a nice a nice um thing for the listeners to go find out when they read your book. I thought that that was so interesting when you, I'd never thought about that before. Yeah. And I would recommend animals and books. Definitely. There, there's so much amazing stuff written about that. I would again, second my recommendation for echo my recommendation of um, Catherine von Stockton's the queer child. She has a chapter on queer children's relationship with dogs. And then there's another fantastic book by another colleague of mine, Eric Tribunella, called Melancholia and Maturation, which is all about trauma in children's literature. And he has a chapter on boy and dog stories, which is, again, uh, another kind of conventional or like a convention we see quite often in children's and young adult literature, young people's relationship with animals, how the animal often has to be sacrificed so that the young protagonist can grow into heterosexual adulthood. And what I like so much about Donovan's book is that it, it plays with these conventions in, in great ways. And I'll let, I'll let listeners uh, check out the book and say no more. 
Yeah, it breaks my heart every time I read something like that. <laughs> no, even if it, I know it's it's fiction. Uh, as my dog sits behind me on the couch and watches me talk to you right now. I know. Poor animals. <laughs> yeah. Animals in queer YA. Whenever there's an animal in an early quiet queer YA book, I'm like, oh, no, I can't. No, I don't can't do, do it. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, believe it or not, Derek, but we've actually come to the end of the hour. And this has just been a great conversation. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, John. I've had It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks again for the invitation. I've, I've really, really enjoyed myself. Oh, I'm so glad. And to our listeners, if you're interested in reading Queer Anxieties of Young Adult Literature and Culture, um, you can click on the highlighted title of the book in the description included with this podcast. And you can also, of course, go to directly to the University Press of Mississippi website or find it at your usual places online. And join us again next time for Queer Voices of the South on the New Books Network. <laughs>